Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, and I am once again bringing back the podcast, the one of the first episodes since the 2020 election. And a lot's happened, of course. And uh, one thing that's been happening is a trend really since the last presidential election with a lot of big names um, getting elected, especially here in Pennsylvania, where we have had people who didn't just win on the party line, though they're Democrats or Republicans, but people who have dynamic personalities, a lot of energy, and really want to get things done. And uh, especially here in the Pennsylvania State Legislature, I feel, with some incredible uh, women who got elected. Lindsay Williams um, out in my parents' district, uh, Maria Collette here in uh, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and somebody who has become a star really quickly just through her own campaigning much less as a state senator, my guest today, uh, State Senator Katie Muth. And uh, we're going to talk today about you know what got her into politics and how much of that has stayed the same versus changed. And hopefully you'll be inspired to follow her example and maybe run for office yourself or encourage others to do the same. So uh, with that in mind, Senator Muth, thank you for talking today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate um, taking the time. So first of all, how was your holiday? Uh, my holiday was pretty low-key, so it was just me and my husband and two dogs, so we were trying to, you know, keep, stop the spread, so I hope a lot of people did that, but um, we talked, we did some Zooms with families, so. <laughs> yeah, so we, we did the same Facebook video, and we're, you know, our, our, we have two young kids, and they're, they seem to be fine with it, so, um, you know, it's a tough time, but I'm glad that we're being responsible. So, I really appreciate you talking. The first time um, that I interacted with you was actually with your husband, my door knocking in uh, Chester County in 2018. So you, your campaign really um, inspired a lot of people. But when did you first become inspired to care about politics? Because not just run for office, because I know you tweeted during the campaign about when you voted in um, 2008 for Obama. You obviously weren't running then, but you know, have you always cared about politics since you were a baby or something come up? No. So growing up, like my family's very patriotic. So both of my grandfathers are veterans. I have uncles, great uncles that are veterans. Um, I have cousins and another uncle that are veterans. So, you know, there was this sense of like, you know, do right for your country. And my mom especially was like love to sing patriotic songs and she was probably the early age of a progressive in Pennsylvania. So um, certainly always teaching me to be inclusive. And, um, you know, I had um, people of color in my family growing up. So things were just different for me, maybe. But my mom just always, you know, I think there's a balance, right? Being raised to, to you know, do the right thing, but also stand up for yourself. So, um, you know, that wasn't so politicized per se, but as I got older, I noticed like banter within my uncles and I have R's and E's um, in, in my family. And so I used to debate my uncle John all the time about um, this was long before anyone thought Hillary would run for president. Um, it, he would just get so upset about it. So my aunt and I would laugh and I would just debate him saying, you know, Hillary's going to become the president. And he like, just his reaction, just like we always had a joke in my family, like, you know, that that was like I was the debater. But um, other than that, I, I th I've always voted, right? And mm -hmm. so that's step one. <laughs> but then add that to uh, my dad um, grew up in a very working class family. So did my mom, but more so my dad. My dad didn't go to college. 
Um, he grew up in a coal town um, called Bagley, Pennsylvania. It's outside of Latro. Um, and so, you know, he had a different upbringing, maybe so, than my mom. But, you know, my mom did get to go to college. And um, she was a nutritionist for WIC, um, mm-hmm. which is Women, Infants, and Children, which is a PA program. But, um, you know, I grew up in a working class family. My dad was a machine tool shop guy. Um, and my mom waitressed at night when Kaufman's. No one knows what that is. Oh, I know what Kaufman's <laughs> is. I would, I would so go to Ross Park Mall. It was Kaufman's at one side, J.C. Penney at the other. Exactly. So downtown Kaufman's in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. was where my mom started waitressing, and then she worked at the one, um, which was Greengate Mall way back mm-hmm. when. So my mom still did that after college and made money at night, you know, just to make extra money for our family. So I grew up with everything I, I needed but didn't know the struggle per se. My parents were good at, you know, providing for us on a very limited budget. But with that said, as I got older, I went to college um, and I went into sports medicine, I started to see the massive inequities with healthcare coverage. And so I've worked in the NFL, I've worked with um, pro hockey teams, I've worked with low income high schools, I've worked um, in all sectors and levels of sports. And so um, I started to see this, this obvious imbalance. And as a grad student, because this was before the Affordable Care Act, I had to take student loans out to have health care coverage, which was required in my grad school. And because I was born with a cataract in my right eye, um, I was a pre-existing condition um, before we were talking about that. And it was a lot of money. Yeah. And so um, it was almost as much money as I made in a stipend as a grad assistant. So that was sort of like my, wow, this is really messed up. Like what, you know, what, this is such a flawed system, trying to figure out how to get, you know, either high school kids or college kids, you know, MRI and state because they were from out of state and they were on Medicaid. And so my husband and I were, are, were both in the same profession at the time. And so we used to have a lot of connections from working at Arizona State. So you could get like an orthopedic surgeon, you know, to send a fellow down to cover your football game or whatever, because these kids just didn't have health care. And so and if they did, it was like the bare bones emergency plan. And so I got really good at negotiating knee braces costs, you know, lower and things like that. But knowing how flawed the system was, um, that was sort of my beginner 101 of wow, money really influences politics. And then you start peeling back that onion and it's a really disgusting onion. (laughs) So all the layers of things of influence, um, every single thing that we know to be, including universities and, and educational institutions, everything's influenced by political money. And so when you start to think about that and then you start to see who represents you um, and the tax tax dollars that all of us have paid, right, to, to fund these salaries of people that are bought and paid for by, by special interests, it infuriated me. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of my, like, aha moment. I will second that aha moment with um, the election of Donald Trump in 2016 in that I'm a rape survivor. So it took me a long time to process like what the hell just happened and like how that could happen. (laughs) So um, that was also another fire that sort of lit under me, you know, to get more involved. And and I helped out in the 2016 presidential race, you know, and following that, my husband and I and a lot of uh, retired women in our area started in a local indivisible group. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there, we just kind of started electing people in the municipal races in 2017. as I learned more about our state legislature and Senator Art Heywood was a very early mentor of mine, um, said, well, maybe you should, you know, think about running. And 
and I looked and I didn't even know who my own state senator was at that time because it's not like he would mail me anything. I'm not, wasn't his party affiliation. Um, and then realized that he, you know, took money from the gas and oil industry and, um, you know, horse racing and other entities that, you know, don't prioritize people. So I threw my hat in the ring, but I will say that um, nobody thought I could win. <laughs> so the reason you were probably out door knocking in Chester County is because we had an army of amazing humans that um, despite not being, you know, heavily funded by um, a lot of the typical donors, unions and such, I had public sector unions support me, but um, otherwise, you know, we were, we were a solely people powered campaign in it with over 400 people coming to knock and knocked over a hundred thousand doors. And I have a purple district, you know, I flipped a red seat to blue and he was a four term incumbent in the Senate and that seat had never been blue. And um, it's a very gerrymandered seat. But despite that, we were able to get to talk to all the voters, every party affiliation. We didn't just talk to Democrats and just talking about basic issues like fairness and like what they and their family were concerned about. And a lot of it was, you know, out of pocket medical costs, prescription drug costs, um, tax fairness, why they were paying so much in taxes. But you know, they knew that other big corporations in Pennsylvania didn't. And if they didn't know that, we would talk about that. Um, so that's sort of where how I got to got to be where I was, because no one thought I was going to win at all. <laughs> so I, w I was very much under the radar um, towards the end. And then, um, thankfully, I, I succeeded. And, and it, it certainly took a village and then some. So and thank you for being a part of that victory. <laughs> well, the first time I really recognized that people were talking about you, and maybe I personally thought that this person has a chance, is I went to one of the March for Our Lives, the the gun rally in 2018, I guess it was, um, and people were wearing your shirt. And I, I didn't see... <laughs> And they, but they weren't doing it because they there was an organizer there saying here wear this button wear this button. Um, there was a buzz, and th there it was interesting. Your logo stood out. Do you, who made that logo for you? Was it just you one day did that in Photoshop? Because like that seems iconic for. Uh, it just seems like a something everyone would have had. Like it was cool. No, um, so I give all credit to. Um, I mean, my husband's made variations of it, but Gabby Richards. Um, is an amazing young woman, comms person. She's yeah, awesome. I know her. She now works. Yep, she works for Mary Gay Scala now. So, um, but she was on the campaign side then, and so she had helped me early on, and we revamped the logo, and then, you know, we made it into a stacked one and a horizontal one, and so it is very. We try to keep it now. That's not the norm of the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, you're supposed to use the old school stuff, but like I, I sort of go by the the thought of that I am who I am, whether I'm running or not. <laughs> so <laughs> there's no campaign, Katie. So why do we have, you know, this is me. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's a cool logo. Definitely like the colors. <laughs> you, you know, I, I have a bunch of notes I wrote down, but that, that is an interesting thing I, I think about with uh, people, especially I feel like in state politics, but I guess anywhere is campaign Katie versus official Katie. You'll see, you know, their personal account, what they're talking about and their, um, Senate account or whatever like that and where what they talk about when they're in different settings and it feels so weird like I know that so-and-so is a normal human being right like does that is that kind of awkward to you like seeing people like have to have these dual lives and how they communicate and express themselves and I don't just mean like inauthentic just like this this dual personality almost well it's interesting because 
you know, the House and Senate <clears throat> are very different. And even though you would think like the Democratic caucuses would have some sort of streamlined, you know, um, like processes, but they don't. So, for example, I know like some of the House members that I'm really close with don't say like, wow, I can't believe you tweeted that out on your official account. I'm like, everything is fair game. And why would you censor yourself? And the, and I think maybe they got more instruction to be more censored. Um but other than asking for donations, which you can't do on an official account, again, like I am who I am, you know, no matter what. And so there are some people, certainly consultants and such that have said, well, you know, how are you going to fundraise all your followers on your official? And, and I said, well, I figured it out the first time. That's not, you know what I mean? I, I can still retweet or do whatever on my campaign side. Right. Um, so for me, it's, um, I'm not, you know, and again, it might just be a matter of what you know, newly electeds were instructed to do versus not. Um, and I think sometimes for me, like I'm often tweeting my own stuff, especially if it's like something, you know, in the moment and not just FYI government, you know, right. announcements or whatever. So I try, I try really hard. Um, I think it's, it's important for people to realize that like we are humans and that we're not machines and robots, you know, like, which is kind of the political norm. Right. So someone's instructing you how to talk and what to say and what not to say. And, um, you know, I think part of being a representative elected official, meaning you're representative of, of the people is that you're willing to have conversations. Like, you know, some people will say like, don't have a town hall where there isn't a topic. They could ask you anything. And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think anybody expects me to know the answer to every single thing on this earth. And I certainly don't. So I will be the first to say, you know what, I'm not going to sit here and BS you, you know, I'm going to, if I don't know, I don't know. And I will certainly research and get back to you. And, and, you know, I'm only two years in and I, I would have never thought that I would have learned this much thus far. And I learn at least a dozen new things a day. Yeah. Some of them are very horrifying, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm certainly willing to share that information with the electorate and with the public because they should know, you know. Whether it pisses someone off or not in government, not really my problem. Well, my, my state rep is Tim Briggs, and he has had town halls um, in a similar way where I've sat there, and I'm like, Tim, why are you saying this stuff? Are you supposed to be not be not be saying this? And, like, it, it seems like an old school, I don't know, political or democratic thing to really set, hold back, censor yourself. And, I mean, I guess you and I probably share the same view of, that doesn't seem to have worked, censoring yourself all the time. I mean, I know why people want to be cautious because I, I certainly have probably said things that were taken out of context and there's always that, that risk, right? Right. Um, but just like, you know, you take a vote and it's like a lot of my colleagues don't want to take hard votes. And I'm like, I'm going to take hard votes um, and I'm going to be able to explain my vote. Mm -hmm. And if I ever made a vote that was, you know, that I really, there's been a few where I've been right in the middle, you know, and it's really hard, you know, whether they, they amend something good and do a really bad bill. And you're like, what's the, you know, how do you weigh that, right. you know, like a, you know, good versus bad pros and cons, but it's like, you have to be able to explain yourself and, and do the research. And so I, I think sometimes it's, it's okay to be like, everything's not so black and white or like, yes or no. Um, but at the same time, like you need to know like what you're not willing to part with like not, you're not negotiating your values just to be censored you know and just um you know i think it's there's a, a thought process to also not speak out against the administration because it's the democratic governor um 
and I don't think that's acceptable. I think, you know, we as Democrats in the General Assembly, we're in the minority of both chambers. We should be, you know, pushing our governor to be, you know, in the direction we want him to go. It's not always easy, but at the same time, like, we're not, you know, we're not minions. We shouldn't be, you know, we should be representing our people. And um, if, you know, if I don't think the administration is, is being honest or doing something like they should be, I'm the first to say something. And that doesn't always fare well for me in terms of um, <laughs> the basic political, uh, I would say, um, you know, I don't want to say rewards, but, you know, there's what's the old school way of getting elected, grant money, cutting ribbons, you know. And so if you speak ill, you might, you know, you find yourself in a little bit of hot water, but I'm not going to lie just to, or not say something. So I, you know, the truth is the truth and, 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 and it has to be out there, right? And so we have to have a conversation about those tough truths, whatever they may be. And you have developed um, quite a following, whether it is um, other elected officials, I'm friends with Matt Stamen, who speaks very highly of you, and um, and Marty Miller, who's another local elected official. Um, you know, people in the county. You've also obviously created when you're 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 outspoken, you create allies and enemies, which is another topic. But um, you know, you were not a political person before this, right? You had voted, you've been involved, but um, be- between the election and having hundreds of people volunteering for you like a really like a prolific logo and and where people are just wearing your shirt out at a community fair on their own um, to having people across the country, even Kamala Harris, the next vice president um, and um, Elizabeth Warren, people sharing your words. This is, this is not the fame you expected a couple years ago, right? Well, I certainly no. I mean, I think, um, but I will say this is that I I look at it a little bit different in terms of those are two individuals you know that I really admire you know for their courage and for their intelligence and and their their leadership at the national level and so um, and and I think the reason the two people like that um, there's there's something so um, valuable in in not of course women supporting women but like you know, true progressives and, and people who really want progress to support one another and uplift their message. And so I'm grateful that they somehow heard mine, you know, and all the things of social media. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I didn't do this to become famous. And I, I think maybe <laughs> some people certainly, um, you know, that's sort of their role, right? Like a lot, there's, there's some level of, you know, people um, that run or traditionally have run you know, they like to be in that spotlight. And I think what I've learned um, is what you just said when you're outspoken, but I like to reframe it as when you speak the truth, um, it can get you supporters, but it can also get you opposition. And so I've, I've learned in a two short years um, how quickly the tides can change. Um, and, and a lot of that might just be um, straight up, you know, or ideological <laughs> opposites. Um, I have a, a little fan club of trolls that um, instantaneously post on my Facebook page within seven minutes of me putting anything up. Um, and you just have to, you know, ignore that and, and whatever, but then, you know, you, you, um, you know, there's, there's still that, uh, unfortunate pettiness and, um, brutal inner circle stuff of our own democratic party. 
yeah. that um, that I've been through the ringer and still continue on a various many ways and and people that supported me before um, certainly have different opinions of me now in the local party and you know the end of the day like again I'm you know here to have those tough conversations to talk about the truth but the more divided we are amongst our party um, is why we get stuck in the minority and sometimes egos and things like that get in get in the way yeah, I find from especially actually from following some of those issues you've been involved in, it's important for Democrats to and progressives to be united, but they shouldn't be united just for unity's sake, but to, to really recognize what they're uniting behind or against. Yep. Yep. Uh, but you know, you I don't want to focus necessarily on online trolls, but it does bring me to something um that has been aggravating me lately, um, and concerning me as we started to talk about before recording is, you know, you probably, you, know, you had a lot to learn with meeting people of both parties who, who once are in office. Um, and it seems like the Republicans, there used to be very, like people would say, moderate Republicans. Uh, you know, you had used to have Arlen Specter as a United States Senator in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, Ryan Costello was considered a moderate Republican, though he voted for, it supported Donald Trump. Uh, you know, and now it seems like Republicans, I don't even know what it means to be conservative versus liberal anymore, because it's not like a tax rate of 30% versus 20%. It's, do you believe that people's vote should be counted? Um, and when you talk, when you see this, do you think that your colleagues, that they believe the craziness that's going on, or they're just afraid of the really crazy people? And, you know, what do you think's worse? I, I feel like from Christmas Day until this moment, my district inbox has just been exploding, and it has over the past couple of weeks with people all around the country, um, you know, talking about Pennsylvania's quote-unquote illegitimate election. And, and of course, everyone has the right to express their opinions, yada, yada, yada. But, like, this inbox, like, these are people from other states. And, and it's not that I... It's, for me, it's like we have so much need here when there's people emailing about unemployment and, right. you know, all these things. And so it's frustrating because I don't think the focus is where it needs to be. And um, if you want my honest two cents here, which I wouldn't hold back anyway, but is that we're watching um, a, a uh, party lose its mind over a power shift, right? And so was really interesting to me because at the state level, unfortunately, we did not succeed in flipping seats in the General Assembly as we had anticipated. But yet my colleagues in both chambers on the other side of the aisle um, contend this election is, is just, you know, fraudulent or whatever they want to call it. But yet they want all these seats, right? And so they're talking about the top of the ticket. And I, and I think some of the moderate, quote unquote, I, I guess you could put them there, aren't playing this game with the Trump train situation. But at the same time, it is, if you are silent about it, then you're complicit. And so therefore you are compromising and, and threatening our democracy because at the end of the day, um, that's something you would assume, right? That both parties would agree on that we, we have to, you know, preserve our democracy. And what's really insulting to me and gives me a chuckle is that I have so many colleagues who are about the institutional respect, blah, 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 in the Senate. And they use these, you know, BS lines and constitutionality that, where they cherry pick what parts of the Constitution they want to uphold or violate. And so, you know, it's selected outrage, right? 
collective outrage. Everybody's outraged at, you know, you know, Doug Mastriano, whatever, about this election. But, you know, Doug Mastriano is a veteran, and he hasn't said a word about the dead veterans in my district from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, like, I, I guess I'm a little bit, um, you know, over the whole, um, let's stick to this one issue that really, you know, but yet we're not going to even discuss the other ones that are actually happening that really matter in terms of, um, you know, immediate need and, and areas that we should be addressing. And so I, I certainly work with people who are selectively outraged. <laughs> well, and it'd be one thing, if, I guess it'd be one thing if uh, Doug Mastriano was just not talking about those people, those veterans who passed away, but he is actively hurting that cause by spouting not just conspiracies about the election, but about COVID. COVID, exactly. And exactly. You know, I hate the, I mean, I like someone said on Twitter today, like, everyone hates lockdowns. I hate, like, not being able to go to things, but I also want my family alive and want this to be done. I don't know, as a legislator, how you know, negotiate with reality. It's like, what, what do you like talk about this and think about like, you know, how do we approach any issue when from COVID to the election, to climate change, to, to healthcare, you're not negotiating like rates. You're not negotiating on issues. You're just negotiating on what people think is the real world, or at least what they're contending with, with their crazy base. I don't, I think it's a little bit of crazy base, but I also think it's their privilege, their bubble of privilege mm-hmm. that they've just existed in forever. And so when we talk about, you know, COVID, it's like, well, the Senate has the best health care in the state of Pennsylvania, and it's one of the best health care packages on the East Coast available to any employee, any employee. So, um, you know, my colleagues in the Senate might not be worried about getting COVID because they have the best health care. But at the end of the day, they are failing to see that if the health care system itself is so overwhelmed, that doesn't matter if you have the greatest insurance in the world, that you won't be able to get a bed or nurses and staff and doctors to take care of you because the system is so overwhelmed, right? They fail to see that part. Their privilege has allowed them to live in that part. They've never had to worry about paying out-of-pocket medical costs. You know, they don't have student loan debt that they're... Senator Lindsey Williams and I do, um, but you know, like we're we're the, when we talk about that with our own colleagues in our caucus, you know, there's a level of of privilege that often puts blinders on, and that's why it's so important to talk about this stuff. But you're absolutely right; it's absolutely just heinous to me for this one reason: is that whether or not they want to, you know, the fact that they refuse to wear masks in that building. And they're around staff, not just their own staff, but, you know, support staff, parliamentarian staff, Mm -hmm. staff that are are high risk, staff that couldn't go see their families for Thanksgiving and Christmas because they had to just, they're too high and mighty to wear a mask around the building. Um, Again, their privilege allows them and has allowed them, right, to, to, to have it how they want it. And you're right, they're trying to have it how they want it in the middle of a global pandemic. And, you know, it's, it's, they're gambling with people's lives and they don't care. And I think that that should be a huge sign to everyone, um, whether or not you're Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter, right? Is that this person that represents you in, say, whatever county, rural county of Pennsylvania, you know, that, that most of, you know, my colleagues on the other side that I'll come from, is that, you know, they don't care because they don't care about you and your family either. And that's a heavy message. And and they're they're you know, they're carrying it on. It's not like there's any end in sight, right? So 
Um, I think that I, I'm hopeful that maybe after all of this, there'll be some more light at the end of the tunnel or at least light shed on some of these people who may have been perceived as the local nice guy or gal, you know, that they're not so nice. And yeah. it's the same thing with climate change and everything else, right? It's, it's how they vote. Look how they vote. And look what they don't do with their majority power. They run the calendar. They run the rules. They make the rules. I, as a senator, who is a minority chairperson of a committee, can't even call a hearing for a bill. Only in the majority. And, and the thing is, especially for climate change, because I have a six, soon-to-be-seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and regardless of my own personal thing, if you look at any of the science, it's not just abundantly clear that climate change is severe, but it affects immigration, it affects access to clean water here in our own state, much less around the country. It affects um, general health, it affects agriculture, including here in our own state. Um, winemaking, even. I've, I've seen that firsthand from touring a winery a few years ago. So those senators, they're not like my neighbor who believes crazy things because he just goes on Facebook. They, they're involved in hearings, right? They get the briefings, They both, both on climate change and COVID. So I imagine, I am impressed with you for keeping your hair um, and not just constantly screaming into a pillow because it's got to be infuriating to know that they have the information and whether they they're... don't care. It doesn't matter. That's the thing. You could give them all the factual information in the world. And here's the end of the day. When the environmental committee chairman, majority chairman, says when he thinks about environmental issues and energy, the first thing that he thinks about and considers is the market. And these are the same people that consider the market right now, right? They want people back to work. They want to reopen businesses. Why? Because they just want people back to work, even if it's unsafe, right? And so instead of providing financial relief so that we, all businesses have what they need to not make these hard decisions, right, which they could have done with their majority power and chose not to, especially with restaurants and bars at the end of November, they did nothing for them. Mm -hmm. They did nothing. And so it, they, there is a... Um, it's gross negligence in my mind. If you have the information in front of you, even if it doesn't match with all your ideological beliefs, you have an obligation as someone who serves the public to weigh the pros and cons. And if you're weighing the pros and cons that, you know what, part of my district is full of fracking or gas pads or whatever, well pads that are have frack waste on it and the water's contaminated, we don't even monitor water quality in Pennsylvania like we should or like our neighboring states do. They don't care. Because why? It would impact the market. And when you have legislators that are driven by the market and special interests instead of the health and well-being of the people, the government is it doesn't work the way it was intended to, right? It's it's we are a corporate state right now. We were before COVID, and we certainly are now. And and it's um it kills people. This is now just more expedited with COVID, right? All the things from air quality, from from all the legacy pollution. Pennsylvania runoff from coal, you know, acid mine drainage that farmers have to clean up and pay for. All of it that existed before COVID. Now the financial burden is just heavier, and people are dying. And what what do you know? What do they do? They're going to the White House. That's great, right? Like, and, and and you have the opportunity. Like, if you had the opportunity to go to the White House and meet with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I imagine that your first priority would not be to talk about the 2020 election, right? Like, 
if you and with this with the needs in the state, they know the needs. Like you have the information. You know that like the economy there is an article that came out this week about how it wasn't the lockdowns that hurt the economy, it was the pandemic because people aren't people are too hesitant to do these things even if they're allowed to. I wouldn't go to a theme Exactly. Park. I wouldn't Exactly. My as someone I know who I like as a person, he keeps talking about how well we've cleaned our restaurant and we're doing extra cleaning. Like, I appreciate that, and I want your restaurant to do well. I am not eating in your restaurant, not because of how clean it is, but because someone else will be there, without, and you can't eat in a restaurant with a mask on. Well, and also it's again, it's it's not it's just this is the nature of the virus, and nothing about it has changed since March of last year. You know, so like it's like. There's, there's nothing new. Like, we all may be tired of these limitations and restrictions. Get it. Totally get it. That is understandable tenfold. But you're absolutely right. Go ahead. Open everything at 100%. You tell me what restaurant is going to be able to be full because people aren't going to go out if they don't feel safe. And, and the reality is people that don't have disposable income because they've been unemployed, they're not going out either. And so this whole reopen that sounds all nice and well to some business owners because they're like, we're, they're getting the crumbs. Go ahead. We want you to reopen. Well, you think they're going to make back what they've lost in nine months just by reopening at full capacity now? No, that's, that's not even a realistic expectation. Right. But the, the, the other, you know, the majority party's not offering anything more than just that. Right. They're not. So it's, you're absolutely right. Like it's this perception that everything's fine. Just open up the floodgates. It's, it's no one wants to, you know, have restaurants go out of business, but it's the nature of the virus. If you're in an enclosed space without a mask on, it's the nature of the virus. Right. And so it, it, you can't cheat that. You know what I mean? There, that, that's just, it is what it is. Yeah, you can't just make a straw that goes through your mask and slurp up all of your food. That would be... <laughs> well, and the reality is if people listen to this, you know, and, and listen to the guidance all through the summer and, um, you know, Halloween, there were still people doing trick or treating. And then we saw Thanksgiving is that we, it's, you know, we can't, we can't have schools reopen and bars and restaurants reopen and this and that reopen. If we can't get the spread down to such a, a small amount that we're able to contain it when we find a positive, that's what these other countries did. We never got to that point ever. Right. People, people went, well, and you had the president say in March, it'll be over by April, and then we found out that he knew how severe it was and from the start, which isn't a surprise that he was told and he knew it. Um, it's just, so, it's just very frustrating, and so it's a greater frustration than when you entered office in 2018, because there wasn't this, but like you said, a lot of it's the same. How do you stay motivated for the next, not just the next election, but the next term, the next terms, plural, and what would you say to convince other people like to run for office in the future? I would say that um, first part of your question, I stay motivated because um, I genuinely believe that I'm in this in this for a reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on the days where I'm so overwhelmed and I feel like I can't fix a single thing and, you know, that's often. But at the same time, um, you know, there are people that are relying on myself and others that do fight for them to keep up that fight. And, and I don't just have like a, you know, didn't take an oath to just do that. I have a moral obligation to them and myself. And so, um, I do believe that things are changing. It's just slow. And I think part of the reason that's so slow is it's, this is exhausting and people's momentum are down. 
Um, and it's, it's not just about people. Of course, we need people to run for office in these places where these seats have never flipped, right? That is key. Um, we also can't self-destruct as a party by eating our own all the time. And we have to know our values, right, as a party and not stand, you know, stand together when we're talking about, you know, our values and, and holding firm to that. But then the other part is we need people to support those people running for office, right? We need the public to be more aware of how the current system is in Harrisburg, which means the majority party holds all that power, how unfair the rules are. The Senate and the House rules, um, how, you know, essentially you could have the greatest bill in the world and they could never get a vote. We've had bills in the legislature for over 20 years about lead exposure and water and lead, lead contamination. Not one of them has ever seen the light of day on the floor for a vote. And so those kind of things people need to be aware of. So I, I'm encouraged that sometimes you have to hit rock bottom to go up. And I think we're pretty close to there, even though I say that's knock on wood. But, you know, we need to have a greater public awareness. And hopefully, as I said, all these inequities existed pre-COVID. Now they're just completely exacerbated by this virus and what it's done to people health-wise and financially. And so um, I hope that this sheds light to people who didn't know these things. And they start asking questions why those who are elected to represent them, who their tax dollars flip the bill for their salaries and benefits why those individuals aren't fighting for their economic sustainability and security and why is the system so unfair. And so, um, you know, I hope that this ignites, you know, a more people powered effort um, and, and that we can flood in boxes, right. For five days straight about climate change and, you know, um, you know, universal health care and, and just, you know, access to education and, and those things instead of, what's coming into my inbox now it's the inverse right and so we need to gather that kind of momentum and sustain it um because I, I think right now we're watching the power shift and we know what happens when people's power people have been in power when they have that power challenged they lose their minds you know and so here we are yeah and i hope that we all come together right and and that the power of the people um is greater than the power of, of special interests and self-interest well, I, I do want to ask two other questions based on that and um, really quickly because it's something that's been on my mind. Um, first, you, you talked about the people in other parts of the state um, who's, um, you know, they're in rural parts of the, the state and then we see in rural parts of the country. How much do you think that the one problem could be that people like voters, citizens, et cetera, are getting their news just from Facebook memes? versus local media like um i'm a and you see that as something that's really rotting people's brains in politics like rotting the system and how that that actually is fed by a lot of corporate media as well by placing ads that can't be seen etc right absolutely and i think that's something we don't talk about enough in terms of how much the media market itself is just a corporate monopoly of crap Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, my own, my, you know, God bless my dad's a Democrat, Westmoreland County. Um, and so he'll send me things every now and again and be like, is this true? You know, like he wasn't on Facebook ever till COVID. And then just so he could keep up with like, you know, our family and family members. And, um, and I'm like, no, dad, but at least he's asking those questions. Because, you know, traditionally, like the news was supposed to be reliable. The news, you know, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the Tribune Review, you know, all of these things, you know, were not supposed to be slanted. So if you turned on the TV, right, the local news, 
it was act was supposed to be accurate. Where now we have Fox News and you know, all these things that aren't, you know, and have a, a certain spin to them and and are outright false, right? And so it's very misleading and it's difficult to find information that's accurate and um, gives all the facts, right? So you're absolutely right. Some of these rural areas is where we need to be have boots on the ground with people in the local communities and have you know a public awareness campaign of this is how this is really working, you know, be careful what you read, like always. And, and I, I have to say one of the highlights and one of the things that just brings me sheer joy and hope is that, um, you know, the last couple of weeks I've been on Zooms with people from Susquehanna County, obviously not Senate District 44, but are having mass issues with permits for um, radioactive toxic well injection sites for mm-hmm. frac waste. And permitting and so no elected officials in the whole county want to talk you know they're up against you know gas and oil and so just talking to people that are just it's like basic things like clean well access to clean water um is not a partisan issue and so you know whether or not they they read the most reliable news or have access to it it gives me faith that these people are at least asking questions about why this has to be this way or how can they stop it and how, you know, and they're acknowledging that what's happening and they know that some of the electives in the area and at the state level um, have failed them. That's a big step, you know, and so um, I'm grateful that they somehow found me and invited me <laughs> into their conversation. But, you know, and I can't obviously fix everything for them, but I'm certainly, you know, been trying to, to stop some of the harm that's, that's potentially coming their way on permit aspects. But it, it does show you that, you know, it is a shame that rural areas don't have access to more information that's, that's accurate. And the, the Facebook can be a powerful tool, but it can be also a harmful one. Well, um, one thing is um, anyone that is standing in the way of clean water should be tossed out. And hopefully you're inspiring people in those chats that you'll have the next Katie Muth or someone like you running. Um, I would recommend if people are listening to anyone watch the Netflix show explained about clean water. It's a 20 minute episode um, about water access across the world and um, day zero in South Africa and what they did there. Uh, so it's should be a top issue everywhere. People take for granted. Um, one last question. I was able to do a podcast with Senator Casey in the before times. And um, I asked him about how he was really the top get for um, Democrats to run for Senate in 2006. He was, you know, had run statewide, had a name, won big. And now we're going to 2022. Um, I don't want to speculate about necessarily who's running, but, you know, the the top people considered for big positions are, again, um, prominent, you know, white men, which doesn't mean they're bad. I'm one of them myself. Um, But, you know, what do you think people should think about when they're thinking about candidate quality and whether they are the type of person that should be a candidate? Because I think a lot of times people look and think, oh, it should be someone like Senator Casey who's running because they'll win and we should get someone like that. You know, if people are thinking about running for office, what should they think about what makes a good candidate? That's a challenging question because I think um, we're not. Pennsylvania just, I mean, at least for U.S. races, for federal races, they have more campaign finance reform in place versus the state has, like, nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the state-level offices, it's a circus. 
So I think money doesn't win elections, but you need some, obviously, to, to get your message and your name out there, right? And so, um, honestly, when I think about who should represent us in the U.S. Senate, I think about who is going to fight, who is the candidate that's going to fight for, for our basic needs, access to clean water, right, affordable housing, um, economic security, um, economic equity, you know, and, and what and how urgently will they work um, to, to drive um, getting those things done, right? And also, who's going to be the voice of truth and not bow into the political machine? Um, those are things that I think we should all be asking candidates. Who's going to fight for the people, even if it means that some of your own colleagues um, or predecessors, whomever, right, have not made those best decisions? Are you going to are you going to be able to acknowledge that and and work harder, you know, to to fix that and um, that's where my head's at. And I think, you know, for me, um, it's not about just electing X demographic. It's about electing the person, right. That's going to fight for your values genuinely, Mm -hmm. um, and not be the candidate who says that and then becomes the elected who doesn't do that. Right. We want someone, um, who has a record of, of staying true to their word, even in the toughest times, because it isn't always obviously easy to do the right thing. Right. I think that's, you know, there are, I, I have my gripes about Governor Wolf. I do think, it, and generally speaking with COVID, he had to make some really difficult decisions and they were the right ones. And you're not going to be the popular person when you're telling people to stay home or to shut down their business. And, you know, but at the end of the day, he's trying to save lives, at least in this aspect. So, um, you know, I, I think that, again, you want someone who can lead in really turbulent times, because I would argue that whether it's Harrisburg or Washington, D.C., it's, it's quite a turbulent environment. Yeah, that's not going to change anytime soon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, if people want to see how you are speaking and, and uh, they want to follow you, what are the best ways that they can follow you to, to see what you're up to in, in Harrisburg? So all my social platforms are at Senator Moose, um, and that's probably the easiest way just to keep up. Um, you know, I, I will tweet from the Senate floor. We repost floor remarks, um, and we also have a weekly e-blast that goes out. You can go to my website at senatormoose.com and um, sign up for that. It's just a good update. Um, of, even if we have a lot of people out of district that sign up for it, um, just trying to give people recaps. And so the social media, obviously, in the moment stuff is, is um, if you follow us on those platforms, you'll get, you know, alerts about events and things like that coming up. So I would recommend that. Well, I recommend everyone follow Senator Muth, and maybe you'll be inspired yourself to to start your own group, invite her to talk in your area by Zoom or hopefully eventually in person or by call. <laughs> and, and maybe you'll get people to run for office themselves because no district should be uncontested, no issue, especially things like clean water um, should be left for someone else to take care of. Um, thank you so much, Senator Muth, for taking so much time to talk with me today. Absolutely. Thank you. And you and your family have a happy new year. And if you're listening, maybe you should run for office yourself.